0: So today's a, today's a good day, uh, continuing on our series on the Gospel of John. As you, as you know, we, we're in our fourth week on this, in, in the this series on the Gospel of John. This is my first message to preach, but just to give you a, a bit of a recap, we spent three weeks on the prologue. So if we keep going at this pace, we're going to knock out the whole book in 12 weeks, um, but we're not going to keep going at that same pace. Uh, it took us three weeks to get through the prologue, uh, which is, it's important you can't you can't rush this. We spent three weeks talking about Jesus's eternal I- identity. How in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We saw how that very same Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld Him in His glory. He was full of grace and truth. He put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. One translation says, but today we're going to make a little bit of a, tran- of a transition. Into the second section, all about Jesus' public ministry, how he began to uh, disclose himself, began to reveal himself to the people of, of Israel. And, and so, so with that, we actually kind of begin uh, a, a little bit of, sh- of a shift in the tone, the genre, uh, as it were. Um, so far, John, the, uh, the disciple John, the apostle John, John the evangelist, as he's known, has been the one writing uh, this prologue, telling us all about it. After three weeks, we're going to begin uh, we're going to shift from this, where John's teaching, he's telling us things, and, and we're going to pick up some story. We're going to talk about, uh, we're, now it's narrative for the next, I don't know, 18 months, um, which is good. But uh, there's some things that we need to know whenever we read uh, in, in God's Word when we're reading about narrative. Okay, uh, Scripture contains several different kinds of, of, of genres. We got, of course, this may be very old for a lot of you, and that's great. Maybe new for somebody, even better. So lots of poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, yeah, Song of Solomon's poetry. Uh, if, her, if her hair really was like a flock of goats, um, I, don't, I don't know if she would get a call back. Um, and, you know, I'm going to break the teeth of the wicked. Uh, you know, probably not. Um, so there's some things in poetry that we don't always take literally because it's poetry, Lots of prophecy. Uh, we got in the Old Testament. We got major prophets. We got minor prophets. We even have some in Revelation in the New Testament. Lots of epistles. That's a fancy word for letters of instruction. Romans, First and Second Corinthians. We have uh, targeted letters of instructions that certain people. Uh, Paul, uh, being the, the prominent example, wrote to churches, or he wrote to individuals. Uh, like First and Second Timothy, for example, we also have general epistles that were just written to the church abroad. We see that in uh, the Epistle of James, first and second Peter we 've been uh, on on Sundays for a long time, going through second corinthians, so we 've gotten very familiar at how we want to uh, listen to how we want to receive god 's word when it's epi- when it 's an epistle but today we 're shifting a little bit and we 'll be here for quite a while we 're going to talk about narrative that 's what we 're doing right now in our quiet time as we 're going through exodus Genesis exodus. Most of those first five books of the Bible, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, those are all narrative. The Gospels are also narrative. In fact, uh, about 70% of Scripture is narrative. So it's important that we understand it. It's important that we know how to handle narrative, how we receive it, how we interpret it, how we apply it, even how we teach it. The good thing is that narrative is easier to read and understand than other genres. It really is. First of all, it's in story form. Okay, it's a story. It's, it's not incredibly hard to follow. This happened, and then this happened, and then this person went here and did this, and then this happened after that. It's got identifiable characters. Uh, we're well served when we take the time to learn who these characters are, some of their character traits, some of their strengths, some of their weaknesses. It helps us a lot when we understand that. And we're used to reading narrative. I mean, we read narrative all the time. So narrative, it, it is. It's, it's easier to read and understand uh, than the other genres. Um, but also narrative is harder to read and understand than the other genres. It's hard to keep it straight. Timeline, setting, character confusion, all these things are important. Okay, which Mary is this? Okay, which which John is this? When you're reading the book of Acts, okay, which, which, which Antioch? Is, there's a couple of, what do you mean there's three Antiochs? What are you talking about? Did this happen before or after this other thing happened? Even in today's, we'll see. Does it really matter which Bethany we're talking about? Are there multiple villages named Bethany? Okay, so it is harder. You have to really keep that straight. you got to do your homework. It's important to know when this happened, who it happened to, uh, what happened right before that, what's going to happen later. We have to know these things. The good thing is, is we have four gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, and when we read one of the gospels, we can look to the other Gospels for help pretty often. Of all the genres, I'll say this, narrative is probably the easiest to take out of context and insert our own ideas. This old British Bible teacher that we used to listen to a long time ago, he always, every single message he always said, I mean seriously, he said it three times a message, but text without context is merely pretext. So if we don't understand this context, if we don't understand where things fit, we can easily get it wrong. Very easy to insert your own ideas. Okay? We have to put in the time to understand the context. We have to know the original audience. Who are they writing to? Why do they say this here? Why does, why does John call him uh son of God so many times? But why well, is he talking about the kingdom of God? But Matthew's talking about the kingdom of heaven. What's what's the, you know, so you have to just gotta understand their audience. Okay? But there's one thing that makes Narrative, the most difficult of all. Makes it, I think, makes it harder than any other genre of Scripture, which is a problem because it's 70% of Scripture. And it's how do we apply it? Okay? When we're reading uh, Paul's instructions to the, the uh, Ephesians, right? Put on the full armor of God. And he explains all the different parts of the armor so that you might be able to stand firm. Uh, when we read... Uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul's telling these people, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing this when you gather? It's so disorderly. Don't do that, do this. It's easy, easy to apply. Oh, just follow your instructions. But narrative's different. Learning from examples can be very tricky, okay? They can be instructive, but not always prescriptive. We can learn from them, but that doesn't mean we always do exactly what the person that we're reading about did. We have to really read them in their context. Let's talk about Peter for just a second. Peter's all throughout the narrative. Some would call him the leader of the disciples. Yeah, I want to be just like Peter. Okay, that's great. But Peter wasn't always right. Yeah, he got out of the boat. That doesn't mean you need to get out of the boat. Some of you would have drowned. And some I would have drowned. That was Peter. Jesus told Peter, get out of the boat. He was just following Jesus' instructions. Peter, he declared when Jesus gathered his few disciples and he said, who who, who are people saying that I am? Peter's the one who was bold. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's also the guy that when Jesus was getting arrested, took a sword and cut a guy's ear off. So don't do everything Peter did. He wasn't always right. We can learn from his example, but that doesn't mean we always do everything exactly the way he did. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus, familiar with the story, it's in several of the Gospels. He said, what good master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, why are you calling me good? There's none good except God. And Jesus tells him, keep the commandments. And then Jesus names off six of the commandments. The six commandments that he names off uh, happen to be the six commandments that deal not with our relationship to God, but our relationship to other people. The rich young ruler says, yeah, I've, I've kept all those from my youth on up. And Jesus says, good, there's just one more thing. Take everything that you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. So should we do that? Do I need to go today and liquidate my assets? It won't take long. But should I do that and give it to the poor? Do I do exactly what he did? No, we learn from the example. It's instructive, but it's not always prescriptive. Um, You're not David. So don't read yourself into the David and Goliath story. You, there is no, you're not facing like a nine-foot giant. It may feel that way, but you're not David. So let's don't, let's don't place ourselves literally in every example. Let's take a look at what God is doing. Let's see where we can learn. We have some great things that help us out. Lots of times in narrative we have uh, breaks where uh, where Jesus is teaching. What we're, we're working through Matthew and its narrative, it's all about the birth of Jesus, how it was foretold, how it came about, the visit from the, the Magi, uh then where, where jesus begins his ministry then all of a sudden we've got three chapters where jesus is teaching the sermon on the mount that's that's a target rich environment if you're looking for application those first few chapters kind of tough but then when you get to where jesus is teaching oh okay you have heard it said don't murder but i say to you don't have anger in your heart towards people you've heard it said don't commit adultery but i tell you that anybody that looks at a, a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery so that, that, that's, a, that's a good environment. He's teaching there. He's giving instructions so we can easily pick up application there. <clears throat> should we do everything that the rich young ruler, an actual person who actually came to Jesus, should we follow that exact example? Not necessarily. But when Jesus teaches a parable, when he talks about a young man who goes to his father and he says, can I have half of everything that you have? I know you haven't died yet, but if you're not going to hurry up and die, can I at least have what's coming to me? Then he goes and he squanders it, finds himself eating with the pigs, and he comes back. We all know the story. The older brother, the father sees him from a long way off, runs to greet him, the older brother is bitter. So yeah, Jesus is teaching a parable so that we might be able to put ourselves in that position. We might be able to see ourselves there. We're not the rich young ruler, but we might be the foolish younger brother, and we might be the bitter older brother. So there's application to be found, but it's hard. We apply what we learn from narrative in pieces over time. Think about just furniture, okay? Narrative is not where you go to the store and you say, like, okay, I want that dresser, this bed, this sofa. Can you deliver it? Yeah, we'll deliver it, and it's going to all be set up in your house and you don't have to do anything. Narrative is Ikea in, like, 15 boxes, and it's all flat and it's in a lot of pieces, and you can't find enough of those little wrenches, And like three of these boxes are coming this week and, you know, box out of seven boxes, you're getting one, four, and five. And you're like, oh, where's two, three, six, and seven? Are they coming later? You know, you don't know where they are, but you know they're going to come and you just got to wait and put together what you get a little bit at a time. That's how narrative works. You're not going to get it all today. After after we work our way through John, then, oh, okay, the furniture is assembled. This application is all put together. We got to be patient. We got to build. Some assembly required. So yeah, look for that direct teaching within the narrative. When we share at the end, and we're going to share at the end, if if, if you're coming away with this, you know, I'm not really sure how to live out today's passage. I'm not really sure how to practically apply this. But I know this, I'm finding myself a little more grateful for my salvation and my heart is full of worship for Jesus. I'll take that. That's good. That's fine. It's a little bit by a little bit slowly our minds are transformed as we correctly understand God's word as we receive it with a pure heart and a ready mind our mind is renewed it's transformed and then when we have this renewed mind we just act we just live and we live out of this we live out of this renewed mind we are we can start to trust our inclinations after we've been transformed and renewed okay Pastor Paul, the last three weeks, has had a really good first question at the sharing time, and we're going to do it again today. It's all about this fuller picture of Jesus. Every week it's been, what about how are you gaining a fuller picture of Jesus? How are you gaining a fuller picture of Jesus? And it's going to be the same thing today. I'm just going to tell you over the next several minutes. That's the goal, is that you get a fuller picture of Jesus. Today, when you leave, you're not going to have clear marching orders. You're not going to have three things that you can put into practice this week. Not going to happen. What I hope happens is we walk out of here with a fuller picture of Jesus. All throughout Scripture. Uh, lots of different genres I've talked about. And there are lots of different... Uh, different, di- uh, different books will have a different focus. Uh, for example, uh, the events of Genesis and Exodus. The, the praise, the poetry, the psalms, the songs that we see in the book of Psalms. Those are all centered around almighty God God the Father. He's the central character, the central actor in Genesis. I mean, you can go on. There's lots. Just for example, Genesis, Exodus, think about Psalms. The book of Acts, the Holy Spirit takes center stage throughout all 28 chapters. It's the work of the Spirit. Romans, we read about the righteousness of God and our own salvation. First and second Thessalonians, we're going to learn a lot about the church. But in John, Jesus is the central figure. Nobody comes close. The one who could have come closest, we're going to read about today, and he quickly says, no, no, I'm not the point. So throughout, however long we're doing the book of John, the idea is that a week at a time, bite by bite, we get this fuller picture of Jesus. As we go in today, we have the gift of hindsight. I had to look up when this movie was released. You guys know The Sixth Sense, right? 20 years ago. Can you believe it? I was just in kindergarten. I'm just kidding. I wasn't in kindergarten. I'm older than that. So I'm going to go ahead and ruin it. If you haven't seen it, it's been 20 years. It's your fault. Um, yeah, I'm not, you know. I'm not going to do like the uh, Avengers Endgame. You maybe haven't been around to that yet, but I mean, 20 years you had to see the Sixth Sense. Um, that first time you watch it, you don't realize Bruce Willis's characters—he's been dead the whole time. There are people who say, "No, I knew." Those people are what we call liars. <laughs> they didn't know. They had no clue. Really well done. But so you go back and watch it a second time, a third time, like the surprises. You know, it's spoiled, but still, when you see it, you can see things in the movie. Oh, you know what? He only talks to the kid. You know what? He never touches anyone else. You know what? There's all sorts of like, you know, like red was the thing. It was like a red doorknob, and one time he was wearing a red sweater, and those are little clues here and there, right? So once you know, uh, once you have this hindsight, once you know how it ends, once you know the secret, then you go back and watch it again, you're like, oh, it's still a good movie, good for different reasons, but yeah, it's it's still a good film. Man, if I ruin that, I'm really sorry. But I don't think I did. So it's the same thing today. Okay? It's, it's the, the characters that we're going to read about in today's passage, they didn't have the benefit of what we've had the last three weeks. They didn't have the prologue. This understanding of a, a preexistent, co-equal God the Son, who is the eternal Word, the living Word, who became flesh and He dwelt among us. They didn't have that. Thank God that we do. It had been 400 years since the Jews had received a word from the Lord in those days. There were lots of, lots of written scripture, Moses, of course writing, getting, receiving the law from God, writing it down on tablets. We see lots of works from scribes, uh, big chunks probably of first uh, and second chronicles, first and second kings, maybe first and second Samuel, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. I mean Ezra, Ezra wrote a lot. Okay, so we're in, in other scribes, so we're benefiting a lot from that. But a lot of times when you read through the prophets, you'll see the phrase in there, "And the word of the Lord came to Amos, and the word of the Lord came to Micah, and the word of the Lord came to Habakkuk. But it had been 400 years since the Jews had received a word from the Lord." That's a long time. Four hundred years of darkness, silence. So that takes you to today's scene. I feel, um, I don't want to, uh, you know, I think I'm on safe ground. I don't want to come across as too big of a nerd. But I feel very Star Wars-y today when I think about these last three weeks is like that scrolling text at the beginning of all the Star Wars films, right? It's long. This prologue. And then in every single movie, right after, right after that, it doesn't go to anything else. It doesn't cut away to another shot. Right after you see that text, it just zooms in on whatever the scene, wherever the scene begins, and that's what we've got today. So today's scene, it's a... I mean, we're, we're thinking about you know, John the Apostle, John the Disciple, John the Evangelist, writing about it. in The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, this, and the Word was God, and this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Full of grace and truth, and we beheld him, we saw him. But now we're zeroing in. The story begins on a dusty creek and a, a kind of a dusty guy. The Jordan River. We had some friends that we were missionaries with, uh, and for a long, and they took a. He was tall. He was um he was six foot seven. Um, they were Dutch. Uh, all like. Like really, kind of very, very white. Um, it's okay if I say it. Um, they had, they had bl- like all blonde hair, like three just beautiful kids. So it, it was cool. We could go anywhere with them, and nobody looked at us. They were they were our, totally our cover. He was six foot seven. He was two meters tall. Um, you know it's metric, but um, but he told us once about going to Israel, and he said they were going by the Jordan, and he was like, "Oh, that's it. Like I can step over it," and he could because he was six foot seven. But um, but that's where we are. We're not in Jerusalem. We're outside of Jerusalem. We're at the at the Jordan River, way on the eastern edge of of uh, Palestine at that time, the land of Israel. That's where we start today's scene. We open up on this figure, John the Baptist. Let's play a little game called "Meet the Character." This is going to be important. Anytime we, anytime we come across a new character, especially somebody that's important, as John the Baptist, it's important, especially with narrative, that we know who they are. Okay. His man, he's got a great story. So he was a Levite. Okay, uh, Levites uh, sometimes served in function of priest. Usually, if if they were if they could actually show that they were a descendant, not just of the tribe of Levi, but actually of the family of Aaron, Moses' brother, then they got to be a priest, like even in the temple. Um, If if you were just a regular Levite, you still had some special privileges. A lot of times they would um, do other tasks around the temple. But we know that his father, uh, Zechariah, was actually a priest. So in his lineage, he was a Levite. His birth uh, is a lot of parallels to the birth of Jesus. It was was, uh, foretold by an angel who came to visit his father, uh, actually told him. Uh, you may be familiar with the story. He, he's actually, uh, his mother and Jesus' mother Mary were cousins. When Mary discovers that she's pregnant, uh, she goes to you know child conceived of the Holy Spirit after the angel Gabriel came to tell her. She goes to the hill country. Mary lived in Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee, where it was uh, flat, kind of in the northern part of Israel. Going to the hill country means going to, towards Jerusalem. Uh, it's, it's uphill. Uh, when you read all throughout Scripture, anytime they're saying they're going you know, when we think up on the map, we think north. I don't know why, but we do. But um, any time you read up, they were going up. That means they were headed uphill. They were going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was up on a hill. So Mary goes to the hill country to be with Elizabeth, uh, who was also pregnant. And when, uh, when they met, uh, Elizabeth says that the baby leapt for joy in the womb because of the child that Mary was carrying. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied after John's birth that he would be a prophet of the Most High and that he would prepare the way of the Lord. He takes a Nazarite vow, which is the same thing that uh, Samson took, uh, no strong drink, uh, couldn't, uh, couldn't touch a corpse, um, lots of very special things. It was clear he's going to be set aside for service to God. He's, he's going to be different. He's going to be set apart. Scripture tells us he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And he went into the wilderness to begin preaching repentance from sins. He dressed in camel's hair. He ate organic. Um, Easily recognizable. Hard to forget. John the Baptist. Later he had trouble with King Herod. He was calling out King Herod for his sins of adultery. And murder. Herod has enough of it. Herod's um, brother's wife, who Herod has taken as his own wife, has enough of it, and later she has John beheaded. That's who John the Baptist is. Again, he's not the John that wrote the Gospel of John. That's John the disciple, John the apostle, also known as John the evangelist. This is John the Baptist. A few key traits we're going to pick up from him, three really stand out. First of all, is his steadfast commitment to point to Jesus. This was his life's mission. This was the reason he was born. To draw attention to who Jesus was. Who Jesus is. He existed, He 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 walked on this earth for no other reason than that. Second thing is his complete refusal of people's praise and their attempts to exalt Him. Completely rejected all their flattery. He left no room for flattery at all. And the third thing is this relentless call to repentance. He had one sermon. Repent of your sins. You have offended our holy God, and you need to repent. That was just that was it. He didn't have you know how to be a better dad. Okay, a quick story just from Luke. I mentioned that Herod uh, has John arrested and later has him beheaded. But it's when John is in prison, he knows that his uh, time of his death is probably. Close, probably at hand, so he sends a couple of his his follow well, his close um, companions. I don't want to say they were his servants or his. They were following Jesus, but they were ministering with John. So John sends them. They were messengers, and they, they John sends them to Jesus and says, "Just go." And and, I, and I'm not going to get into the whole reason why he sent them and asked him. Can Can you just ask Jesus? Are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we look for another? Crowd was gathered there. The messengers show up. They ask Jesus the question that John wanted him to ask, and Jesus responds to him and said, Go back and tell John. that The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind receive their sight. And blessed is the man who's not offended on account of me. Taken from uh, Isaiah 61. They go back to give John the message. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold... I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John's life was simple. He had one message. Repent. Turn from your sin. Refuse to accept the praise of others. And his life's mission was just to point to Jesus. As we continue our story, we're just about to dive into the text. But before we do, we need to talk just a second about prophets and priests. So that we understand these roles, we're going to read about prophets and priests quite a bit. Uh, All throughout the Old Testament, we see it through the New Testament as well. There's some pretty clear distinctions. Prophets are those who they bring a word from the Lord to the people. They have a they have a message. They're delivering a message from God to the people. The word of the Lord came to Amos. The word of the Lord came to Nahum. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. They have a word for the people. They were temporary. Sometimes they were they were here today. They were gone tomorrow. Uh, when the word of the Lord came to Amos, he was out plowing his field. He wasn't a scholar. Just the word of the Lord came to him, so he went to go deliver the word of the Lord. Oftentimes, they're gone just as quickly as they arrive. They bring the message from God to the people. Priests are a little bit different. They present the people to God through sacrifice and through orderly worship. It's regular, ongoing service. Prophets would travel. Priests stayed in the same place. They helped people make sacrifices. They they taught people the songs. They taught people how to praise God. They taught people... um, this regular, ongoing, how do we worship the Lord? Very distinct roles. Both very important. We need both. Prophets without priests can lead the people into confusion. All these, oh, here's a word from the Lord. Here's a word from the Lord. Here's a word from the Lord. Without somebody who's always there, who's always beside you to help you make sense of it, to help you synthesize it and say okay this is what it means well this is what it means and this is how we can live it out this is how we can put it into practice that's a problem even among christians in america today we are um profit seekers not well we're also profit seekers the other way you spell profit sometimes but we're always looking for this yeah so but you were always looking for like oh Have you heard this podcast? Have you heard this podcast? Have you heard this podcast? Listen to this guy. Watch watch this. Have you seen this video? This is so good. So, so good. But we do this without the help of our priests. We do this not in the context of regular, ongoing community. And we get confused. We get mixed up. We think that our, our pastor is some guy whose podcast we download. No, it's not. There's certainly a place to learn from people. Don't get me wrong. Those are great. On the way here, we were listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Cindy said she was listening to it in case you know, my message wasn't that good. At least she's got something. So, um, like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, um, Me too. So, um, so prophets without priests, they lead the people into confusion, but priests without prophets can become spiritually blind and deaf. And that's what we're seeing here, 400 years with no prophets, and the priests have become spiritually blind and deaf. So they come to John, we're going to get into our text today. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John's preaching and his baptism at the Jordan was creating a stir among the religious and political leaders of the Jews. He wasn't doing this in Jerusalem. He was doing it way out by the river, way out in the middle of nowhere. And so people were leaving where they were from to go out to John. People were noticing. So they sent a group to go ask him, hey, who are you? Who is this guy? We don't know their motives. We can guess, but we don't know. They could have been trying to shut him down, just get people to go back home. Or they could have been trying to draft him into their ranks. Hey, this guy's got some followers. Maybe we could bring him in, consolidate power, negotiate something. He could be a powerful political ally. He's possibly seen as an enemy to King Herod. Maybe we can use him. We can expose the king, get more from the king, leverage and for all they knew, he might have actually been the Christ. They didn't want to miss him. We know what John thought of them when they came. We read in other, not today, not in, John's not in the gospel of John. We read in other gospel accounts. He calls them, you brood of vipers. John didn't have a lot of appreciation for those who came. Let's look at what he says. First he says, I'm not the Christ. He starts at the heart of the matter. He doesn't build up to this. He starts with this. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way. I am not the Christ. I mean, he plays no games, leaves no room for doubt. He's not going to get to this later, keep him in suspense. I'm not the Christ. Let's get that clear first of all. They ask him, are you Elijah? I'm not. John says he's not Elijah returned. Elijah, as you remember in the Old Testament, he was caught up to heaven in this chariot of fire. And many believe that Elijah, the one who was caught up—that actual Elijah—would return just before Messiah came. So they ask him, "Okay, so are you this Elijah then? Are you Elijah come back?" Remember when when Jesus asked his disciples, "Hey, who do people say that I am?" They said some people think you're Elijah come back. So they asked John, "Are you Elijah?" He's like, "No, I'm not." Well, are you the prophet? This is a short passage from Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen when Moses says that one day the Lord will raise up a prophet among his people. Many Jews believe that this prophet would come before the Messiah or maybe even be the Messiah. We see it a little bit later in the book of John. Uh, Peter refers to it in one of his sermons in the book of Acts. He says, simple answer, no. Okay, John, well, then who are you? Our bosses need something, not just your denials. We've got to tell them something. What do you say about yourself? He says, this is from Isaiah 40. He says, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John doesn't, he's not like a traditional prophet. John doesn't have a word from the Lord, like the word of the Lord that went to Nahum, the word of the Lord that went to Amos, the word of the Lord that went to Joel. He doesn't have a word from the Lord. God's people didn't need a word from John. We're just about to meet the living word. We're just about to meet this preexistent, eternal word. We don't need any words from John. That's why he says, I'm the voice, I'm not the word. Now they've been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, like, well, if, John, if you're not any of those, then why are, you, why are you baptizing? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. It's sent from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were initially, you don't read much about the Pharisees in the Old Testament that came along in that in-between period, those 400 silent years. The Pharisees, they were initially concerned with preserving the purity of their Jewish faith during a period of intense persecution almost 200 years prior. Their original aim was to survive this persecution and hold fast to what we believe. But by this time, their intense legalism had given them a sense of moral superiority and it even caused them to become inappropriately fixated on gaining political power. They were trying to mix their faith with politics and they wanted power. John had no patience for them. And they asked him, okay, if if you're not these, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet that Moses was describing, then on whose authority are you baptizing Jews? Baptism, where does it come from? Uh, Well, well, John baptized people. Great, who baptized John? How did it start? So baptism, uh, sometime after the Old Testament ended, uh, baptism became a way for people uh, as they came back. You remember, just a little bit of history because we need history because it's narrative. We're about to read in Exodus uh, how the people are crossing the wilderness, getting ready to enter the promised land. As we read in the book of Joshua, and a little bit in the book of Judges, when they enter the promised land, the goal is conquest. Drive these people out. They're there for centuries. Uh, Prophets come and go. Kings come and go. They're taken into captivity much later. When they return from captivity, the goal isn't conquest, drive them out. They're too weak to do that. So they're there living with other people from other nations all around them. And by God's mercies, many of those people wanted to become Jews. How would they become Jews? How would someone convert to Judaism? One thing that they did was that they were baptized as a symbol of them. um, Yeah, it was a baptism of repentance. They're washing away their old false beliefs, and they're ready to uh, join this family of God. They're ready to join God's people, the Jews. But that's why they're asking John, who are you... you don't baptize Jews. You don't need to do that. You baptize other people. So why are you baptizing Jews? Whose authority are you doing this on? We don't need that. We're, all, we're okay. John says, I'm, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. John makes it clear that his authority to baptize comes from Jesus himself. He says he's the strap, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John's not merely humble just to be humble. He's humble so that he might point to Jesus. Okay. They're at Bethany across the Jordan. There's some debate about the name. Should they Is it Bethany or some other name? But one thing we know for sure, it's not the Bethany that's near Jerusalem where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. But John's baptizing. He's calling them, like, why would you baptize Jews? Because they need to repent as well. That's why he's baptizing. It's a baptism of repentance. I don't know why, and I don't know if I would have asked it. Because I think, just like we've been reading in Exodus with quiet times, how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I think that these Pharisees, their hearts were hardened. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Nobody says, who, where? Show us. Sounds like we should meet him. Nobody says that. They just go on. Their hearts are hard. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well-known verse. John continues, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. With the help of of the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can learn a little bit about the sequence of events here. It can be tricky. John had been baptizing at the Jordan for a while. Many people had heard his message of repentance, and they wanted to be baptized as an outward representation, an outward sign of the change that had happened in their heart. Outward representation of their inward repentance. John had previously and reluctantly baptized Jesus. What we're reading today is not the baptism of Jesus. That happened already. John recalls hearing the voice from heaven and the Holy Spirit as a dove after Jesus came up out of the water. Because when Jesus, as we read in the other accounts, when he was baptized, he left immediately after his baptism. We read in the other three Gospels to go into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And Jesus is now returning from that time in the wilderness and he comes again to the Jordan. That's why John is recalling, this is what I saw when it happened. Let's look at this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After 400 silent years, at long last, here is the promised Messiah. Here is the one that we've been waiting for. If we were able to watch this like a movie, we could see him. We could pick him out. Finally. We don't hear him speak yet. That happens in the the next section. Still got to wait a little bit. But that sense of anticipation is there. After 400 silent years, here he is, the promised Messiah. For us, after three weeks of prologue, he's finally in view. We haven't heard from him yet, but he's there. and He's about to say something. He's real, in fact, according to the story, the next day he's going to say something. Jesus was among his people at last. And he would be for three more years, but there were so many people who never saw him for who he is. So who is he? Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Lamb of God. Behold, take a look at the Lamb of God. Let's talk about him being the Lamb, just for a second. Jesus was meek and gentle like a lamb. Okay, yeah. But he was so much more than that. Don't stop there. Jesus, we're gonna, there's a lot of these. Jesus represented the providence of God, how God provided When Abraham took his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, finally after, and he's an old man, he's 100 years old, he has a son, finally, and then God says, I want you to offer him to me. So he takes him up on the mountain, and they're going up, and Isaac says, yeah, we have wood, we have fire, but uh, Dad, what are we going to sacrifice? Abraham says, don't worry, God will provide. At the moment that Abraham was just about to offer his own son, he was stopped. By the messenger from God, and they found the ram, not a lamb, but a ram, whose horns were caught up in a thicket. So Jesus represents a perfection of that. All these things we're seeing in the Old Testament, it's like, it's like the window' not quite as clean as it could be. We can see it, but not totally. Like, oh, it kind of represents that, but Jesus is, Jesus is the perfection of this. Jesus is the perfection of all those sacrifices hundreds of years. The priests outside the temple. When they're on the move, like we're reading in Exodus, outside the tabernacle. When they establish a city, then it's, outside, it's in the courts of the temple. Hundreds of years of morning and evening sacrifices. They pointed to this. They pointed to Jesus. In those days, those sacrifices were not forgiving their sin. It wasn't removing the penalty of their sin. It was just like pushing it back a little bit. It's just like if you've got a credit card bill and you're only paying the interest. Like, not smart, but you're not paying down the principal. You're just paying the interest, and that's what these sacrifices were doing. It's just getting us by until one who's going to come, and they're going to pay down the whole thing. So it points to Jesus, who was the perfect sacrifice. John talked, and we'll read very soon about how Passover is coming. So certainly, this is in their mind. Passover will be coming very soon, but Jesus was the perfection of the spotless Passover lamb as we just read in our quiet time in Exodus, I like it that we're doing Exodus, this works well, causes the wrath of God to pass over us. He was the lamb that was led to the slaughter, the man of sorrows from Isaiah 53, dying for our transgressions once for all. He was the lamb of God. When people came to the temple to worship, they had to bring their own sacrifice. Bring your own sacrifice time. Joseph and Mary, when Jesus is a baby, they're coming to the temple. You can tell uh, their economic status by the sacrifice that they bring. Joseph and Mary just bring the two doves. At Passover, God instructed them, Exodus 12, each household is to offer one of their own spotless lambs and spread the blood on their own doorpost. Moses' household offered the lamb of Moses. Joshua's household offered the lamb of Joshua and so on, right? They go get one of their own lambs from their flock, kill it, they're going to cook it and eat it, but they're going to take their own lamb and they're going to spread the blood on the doorpost. So when we say this is the lamb of God, it's not... God gets his own lamb, his very own son, to set his people free from their sin. He doesn't just say... Verbally, you're free from your sin. It's precious. He offers his very own son. He takes away the sin of the world. Sometimes as we go through the book of John, we're going to see the same words used a lot. We need to understand what they mean. Pastor Paul's already taken us through when we talk about light and life and belief. We see those quite a bit in the book of John. We're also going to see world quite a bit, and it's worth it to understand what John means when he's quoting Jesus. It's Jesus always talking about the world, but when John writes it out for us. John records Jesus as saying, this is not, this is, this is not you know, Louis Armstrong, I see trees of green, what a wonderful world. That's not the picture that's being painted here. John records Jesus as saying that the world is a place that, although it's created by Christ, it's incredibly hostile to him and his followers. Jesus says all three of those things right there. The world hates me because I tell it its deeds are evil. He tells his disciples at the Last Supper, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And he tells them, in this world, you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Incredibly hostile place. So how much more precious does it make it when we read, for God so loved the world. This is how he loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes on him might not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not a good world he died for. So he takes away the sin of the world. What does this mean? Okay, John is effectively saying, you're all out here at this river right now, you're all repenting of your sin. Great. But you need to know that your sin will not be removed any other way except by this man. You're all repenting from it. Wonderful. He's the one that can take it away, and only him. He's not taking away all of the sins of all of the people. That's universalism. I heard uh, there's a very well-known pastor and preacher of a large church that uh, he's, he's since gone to be with the Lord. Um, this is one thing that he would say sometimes when you hear him preach, and I never was a fan of it. He would always say that on the cross... Jesus bore our sin, He even your sin, my sin, the sins of Hitler. Got to disagree. Hitler's paying for the sins of Hitler. Jesus does not take away all of the sins of all of the people. That's universalism. We don't all end up okay, is the sad reality. This isn't love wins. Spoiler alert, love doesn't win. Jesus wins. So he's not taking away all the sins of all the people. That's universalism. That means that everybody's going to be saved no matter what. He's not taking away some of the sins of all of the people. Who's that going to help? Thanks for taking away some of them. I still got to, you know, like, instead of Jesus paid it all, it's Jesus paid it some. No, that's not going to help anybody. What it is is Jesus is taking away all of the sins of some of the people. The work of Christ on the cross, it's sufficient. It would be enough to save everyone who's ever lived. It would be. There's no flaw in his sacrifice. But this salvation is not applied to anyone who's ever lived, but only, as John writes earlier, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He didn't just make sin vanish or wipe it away, he didn't just speak it to go away forever. He took it away on his back to the cross. He himself, Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. As our great high priest, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus entered heaven itself to the presence of God on our behalf. And there he pleads for us and makes intercession for us. He acts as a priest on our behalf. Even now, he takes away our sin daily same John who's writing here will write in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just. He'll forgive our sins and he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He died once for all. He suffered once for all. He forgives our sin daily. Robert Rollock, the first regent of the University of Edinburgh, Scotsman, in 1599, he said, the influence of Christ's sacrifice is perpetual in his blood, never dries up. We'll end today with this. This is the Son of God. John ends by saying, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John says, he was before me. Even though John was probably a few months older than Jesus, when he says this, John shows his understanding of Jesus' preeminence. Quite possible, his pre-existent, eternal nature. John's recalling what he saw. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So he's recalling what he saw at Jesus' baptism. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven. The skies opened, and there was a voice from heaven. I myself didn't know him. John says this a couple times. They're cousins. Did John really not know him? The best explanation is that John knew Jesus and knew he was certainly favored of God, but he didn't understand Jesus to be the Son of God yet or the Lamb of God or the eternal Word or the coexistent God until after Jesus' baptism when the heavens opened and the Spirit descended like a dove. That's when he fully knew him. The danger here, there's a danger in this is the thinking that until that moment Jesus Jesus wasn't fully God, but he was. And John fully knew who he was when he witnessed that. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a washing of the body to represent repentance, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit to give new life and rebirth in our hearts, to forgive sin and grant eternal life. This isn't something you experience after salvation, maybe some do and some don't. This is part of our salvation that all believers experience. John ends with this. This is bold. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Many in his audience would say this is blasphemy. What a statement. John confesses here there's no backing away from it. This declaration is firm and it's simple. This is the Son of God. The hard part about application when we read narrative is this. This is this is the point. We want to say, oh, how can I apply this? In just a minute we're gonna break into groups. How can I apply this? I think I need to be humble, like John the Baptist was. I think that's gonna be my application. Okay, yeah, that's good. But that's not the point. It's not the point of today. You're not digging deep enough. Our application today is heed John's testimony. For us to cast our eyes on Jesus, let's behold this Lamb of God who takes away our sins when we were part of that hostile world. I know Good Friday service and Easter was just a couple months ago, but there's no statute of limitations. We need to know this all the time. Later in John, we're going to read about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. We're going to read about him as the resurrection and the life. We're going to read about him as the light of the world. All these great titles, but the writer John and the story itself starts where it needs to start. He is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin when we were hostile to him. If this is your application today, you did well. I don't know exactly how to put this into practice. I don't know how I'm going to live out something that I heard today. I don't know how I'm going to act it out this week, but I sure do have a lot of gratitude to Jesus today. And that really makes me treasure him. If that's what you're coming away with in your small group sharing time, that's awesome. And week to week, we will build on that. We'll put the furniture together slowly. This whole point of us going through John together is that week to week, slowly but surely, building a firm foundation, we will see Jesus for who he is. And today we see that he is the Lamb of God. Perfecting everything that was lacking to take away our sins. Our response should be our worship, our praise, our love, and making Him our treasure. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are thankful. That you didn't even spare your own son, but that you offered him as a sacrifice to make us righteous. We're thankful that when we, once a month, when we uh, break the bread and drink the cup, we, we don't just say, This is Christ's body broken. We say, This is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's bloodshed for you. We pray that today and this week. That we would dwell on that. We would treasure Christ. The one that we have waited for for so long. We would see him. We would give him thanks and glory and honor and our love and our affection and our attention. Because he's taken away the sting and the penalty of our sin that we could not do on our own. We're thankful for his kind mercy. May it never become old to us. We pray that through the working of your Holy Spirit that those thoughts and those ideas that we see in your Holy Word would take deep, deep root. And as we add to it over the next several weeks, that it would grow and bear fruit in our lives. We ask it in the name of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. Amen.